It is the first Monday of the month, and we are coming to you with our monthly Q&A session. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 239. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions that will help you to develop your leadership skills. And part of our commitment to the Coaching for Leaders podcast and the community is an ongoing dialogue. It's uh, fun for us every month to be able to, in addition to all the individual emails we have, to bring everyone's voice into the show and to respond to some questions, at least to hopefully give you some things to think about that you may not have already thought about or just looking at things from an objective perspective. And as every month, I have along my favorite person in the world, and that would be Bonnie Stahoviak, my best friend. Hello, Dave. How are Thanks you today? Thanks for having me back. I'm doing well. I feel a little bit on top of the world because, as you know, I'm getting over being sick and the kids being sick and you being sick. And finally, we're able to go out in the world. And I went to exercise this morning. It was really nice. I'm sort of cracking up because we had just had a conversation about how <laughs> some podcasters who will remain nameless and other podcasts... <laughs> Always start shows with, hey, what's in your, I don't know, coffee, thir- mug. coffee mug and have yeah. 10 or 15 minute conversations on that. And But we're not going to do that. We're done, actually. Our conversation is over. You don't want to talk about the flavor of the iced tea you are consuming no, right now? No, this is the show that we get questions from. And we have a question up from Daniel. And, and thanks to everyone who wrote in questions this month, another batch of tough ones. We do. We have some great questions and we're going to get through as many as we possibly can. And Daniel indeed did send in the first question here. Uh, Daniel wrote to us and said, I have been facing a hard slash stressing moment with a specific guy from my team and it's not been an easy situation to handle. The rest of my team are always complaining about this guy and they don't trust this guy's opinions. I asked the team to try to have some informal conversations uh, over lunch, for example, and I also tried to give some advice to him, but the situation is still the same, and sometimes I feel like it's getting worse. It's really consuming a lot of energy from my side of trying to fix the situation, and I've been feeling quite depressed dealing with all of it. There are a couple of things that have helped me in difficult situations like this, and it really, you used the word energy Daniel, and these people really can take energy. Daniel Goleman, who's famous for having done a lot of work in the area of emotional intelligence and has a book by that name, also wrote a book called Social Intelligence. And in that, he poses his theory and his research around the idea that our emotions are contagious. And I really have experienced that. There are people in my life who, when I get around them, bring me energy, bring me joy. Dave's smiling across the table. You are one of them. And then there are people who take that energy and joy right out of me. And I think one of the things to focus on first is to recognize that we could try to change that about other people. And there's a 
cartoon, which some of you will be familiar with, the Peanuts cartoon, and one of the characters is called Pigpen. And no matter where Pigpen goes, Pigpen always is this dusty cloud of dirt that he carries with him. And it's kind of like that. And you wish you could just point it out to the other person so they could shower and get rid of their cloud of dust, or in this case, negative energy. But we can't change other people. The only thing we can change is ourselves. And I just actually finished reading the book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. And some of you might be aware of this book. He writes of his time spent in the concentration camps. And he writes so powerfully about how they could take everything away from him. They could deprive him of food. They could deprive him of water. They could deprive him of social contact. They could deprive him of everything except for his ability in his own mind to imagine a vision of a different future. So just this idea of how powerful our minds are, that I can't go and fix your pig pen. I can't go and try to change that other person but I sure can change mine. And I know for myself that I often think about that in terms of just bringing myself some more joy. And I don't talk often about my spiritual beliefs on this show because it's not really relevant for our entire audience. But there is actually a verse in the scripture that I study in the Bible that talks about, it has a whole list of things we could think about, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. And I've actually memorized, obviously I've memorized those words because I just repeated them without reading it. I didn't, didn't plan on necessarily sharing that with the audience, but I really, it just comes to mind of something that I do in my life on almost a daily basis when I start to have really just negative thoughts and I start to feel that little cloud of negativity around myself. I can always think of something that's lovely. I can always think of something that's noble. I can always think of something that's pure or admirable, or if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, there's a lot out there that is excellent or praiseworthy. And even just as I'm talking about it now, I find myself smiling and Dave's across the table and he's smiling. The whole idea of social intelligence, that as we can rewire our brains to focus on the positive things, they become bigger. And that is the only freedom that we have that no one can ever take away from us is our ability to do that. No one can take that away. So the idea, another idea that that came to mind that has been helpful, and I think it's actually Dave who taught me this, although I know Dave, you learned it from someone else, is the idea of picturing that person as a little child. Mm. And not to do that in a negative way. I could, You could certainly see how you could interpret that in a negative way of like, you're just a sniveling little child. But no, just the the beauty of all children and the pureness of all children. And if you've been around young children for in any in any recent time, you just really see their innocence. And they get into trouble and they have trouble putting their shoes on or they have trouble. I mean, you just think about they don't have to be so big and mean and awful. They can just be little and troubled. <laughs> you think about sometimes what people might have experienced. Another thing that's helpful to me is think about that that person that I've bec- I've made so large in my own mind as kind of the enemy, as that bad person, as that person on the team that Dave was talking about that everybody works there, that actually they're loved by someone else. There may be someone's child. They may be someone's parent. They may be someone's loved one. And gosh, if no one loves them in this world, I mean, if they're truly that 
I mean, I, I can't imagine that that's the case, but if that's really the case, how terrible. And maybe that's supposed to be my job to just love this person in my own awkward way. I don't mean this is a workplace. We have to remember the context that we're talking about. But I do think love comes into play in the workplace. It's not love like a romantic love, hopefully not. <laughs> but it's a different kind of love where we can love. And, and part of love is deciding to love another person. And And in the workplace, for me, a lot of times that means that I choose to love this person for the unique contribution that they have to make, even if the contribution that they have to make comes with all sorts of colorful <laughs> experiences and trying to work with that person. So I guess the last thing I would say before I pass it over to Dave is just that rather than trying to fix another person, oftentimes I find it just helpful to model these things for other people and mm, I love that. not respond in some aggressive or, or defensive way when they're deciding to act out in some way and just to be the the calmer of the person. I, I can't say I aspire to that. I can't say I always live up to oh, that. But. Well, I don't think any of us ever always live up to that. And I remember getting that advice from a seasoned coach a while back that someone had asked in a public forum of how do you how do you connect with people who are just complete jerks? Because this is a person who got hired to really work with real jerks in the corporate boardrooms. And he said that. He said, I find something I can love about them. And it may not mean make it easy, but he found that was his way to be able to connect with them on a human level. He'd find a, a picture of a child on their desk or something like that. He'd say, I'd, I'd focus in on that and I'd find something I could love. You read that book about love in the workplace. I can't remember what it is because I didn't read it, but hmm. love is... I know. It's the Tim Sanders book. Yeah. Oh, why am I blinking? It's such a great book. I don't know. Should I read love, the next? Uh, love is the killer app. Love, love is, is the, the killer, killer app. app. Okay. Oh, it's a great book by Tim Sanders. I he talk. Oh, I just love that book. I'd love to have him on the show sometime. If anyone knows Tim Sanders, please let me know. Uh, can I say one more thing yeah. tactically about this too? Because my sense is is that part of the question here Daniel's asking too is I love the way you you frame this around like how do we think mentally about how to how to work through this from a <laughs> from a like not going into depression as a manager and as a team leader on on working with someone like this because I think if you're not dealing with this today you will be at some point in your career as a leader on a tactical level I also would suggest that if you have someone like this on your team who is causing difficulties with the rest of the team and there's things that they are doing that clearly are not in alignment with the company culture or expectations or there's things that they are doing that are disrupting other people in their work that what you how you respond to that says often as much about you as it does the other person so it may start with that person but ultimately if you as a leader don't set the tone for how the organization is going to respond to that person and what that person can and cannot do and what expectations are set if you choose not to do that or not to intervene it ends up reflecting as poorly on you, if not worse in the long run, than the rest of the team getting frustrated that nothing is done to correct a problem. And I've absolutely made that mistake in leadership situations where I let something go too long, or I didn't say something, or I didn't intervene in some way, when it was clear there was a expectation that wasn't being met. And I paid the price from a trust standpoint of, of as a team leader or even as a facilitator. I've had this happen in a classroom where someone challenged me and I didn't, I've learned to lean into a an uncomfortable situation much more quickly now than I did in the past. So for whatever that's worth, I hope that's helpful to you, Daniel. This next question is from Wendy. She starts by writing, you are so wonderful. And I'm pretty sure she's talking about me because I'm uh, reading. Uh, you know, if you want to get an email on the show, here's the way to start it. 
but she's talking about me, right? She's oh, not of talking course. about you. Of I'm, course. All, I'm on once a month, but I'm all she thinks about. This is how you start every email to me, of course, right? <laughs> I have been listening to your podcast for about two years now. It has helped me grow to become a better leader. What a nice compliment, by the way, Wendy. Thank you for writing that. Yeah, in that all is really sweet of you. Thank you. One thing I struggle with as a leader is that pushback when I try to encourage someone to learn something new, especially the employees that feel like they just don't have the time. I sense that at times the group I lead will be a little afraid of any change. I also wonder sometimes if I may be pushing too much change too fast. Wow, there's so many different things we could say about this, and it it gets to the core of, of leadership and change in so many ways. Wendy, there's two things that came to mind for me when I read your question and I was thinking about it. One of them is the importance, I think, that that a leader plays in an organization, and particularly a leader who has perhaps some more experience, which is often the case, not always, but has more experience in a particular area or a, a job skill set that their team than their team may have. And I do think that there is a unique responsibility that we face as leaders to do what we call at Dale Carnegie, the why before the what. Yes, you're learning this new skill. Or, or there's a skill here that I think that would be helpful to you to learn, or this is in your professional development plan or whatever the case may be. But before we get into the logistics of how to do that, let's talk about why that's important. And I do think that this is a step that is often missed by a lot of leaders of providing the perspective and the long-term vision on how learning a particular skill set can help really be valuable to that person's career in the long run. So... Uh, if you have someone coming into your organization, for example, on the team, and maybe they're a new hire and maybe they don't have a lot of professional experience, they may not appreciate why learning a sales process, for example, interact with a customer is going to be a skill set that's going to be beneficial to them in the long run. So I think part of the part of the thinking for all of us as leaders is to understand where people in our organization want to go. I mean, that's one of the reasons. One of the reasons I always want to know about people's long-term goals and career plans is because almost always there are tie-ins for what a person wants to do long-term and the current skill set that the job either dictates or requires them to to perform. And if I can find that tie-in from a leadership standpoint of here's here's where I know you want to go 10 years from now. Here's what you talked about in your interview. Here's what I know about your your personal background and what you've told me about in professional development conversations. Here's the skill set we have in front of us or different things that we have to learn. I think we have a unique opportunity as leaders to help make that connection for people of say, hey, look, if you can learn this and get better at this, look how that could help you down the road. Here's how you could then leverage this skill. And I think that's missed a lot of the time. And a few minutes of spending the time to do that, of taking the time to understand where people want to go, and then figuring out how you can help them to use that skill set to get them there, I think that's that's just really great leadership work to be able to do. So that's one thing that, uh, that I'd, I'd certainly encourage you to do if you haven't already. The other thought that I had is escaping me <laughs> now at the moment. <laughs> what was it, the other thought that I had? I'll let you think about it and I'll start to respond. Yeah, yeah, please, because there was something else I was going to throw in here. Go yeah. ahead. Well, I was thinking about, first First of all, Wendy, I have a really hard time being patient with this whole time thing. 
And I have to, I have to calm myself down to realize that not everyone is at the same place that I am at in my life with regard to time. And as Dave was talking, I was thinking about how thankful I am to be married to someone like him, because anytime he and I ever have an argument where either one of us starts to go down the line of, well, I don't have time. I was thinking about there was something recent and it, it could happen in either direction. It's not like Dave says this and I don't. We both could be tempted. Any of us as human beings could be tempted to start with, I'd, I'd say, hey, Dave, how come you didn't do this? And it was something that we had talked about is important and and that we had agreed he was going to do and he didn't do it. And he said he started down the path of, well, I just didn't have time. And it's funny, I'm thinking back to that it was just a day or two ago. He instantly went kind of, I didn't make the time to do it. Because both of us, and we've never explicitly had a contract where we signed it to say, we're, we're just not going to say that. But anytime we in life say, I don't have time to do it. If you really dig down either within yourself, because you're starting to say that or with someone else, there's something else behind that. And I've talked about on the show before that I worked with this amazing woman who just wasn't interested in ever getting her undergrad degree. She was, she is, I shouldn't say was, she's still working in a professional capacity. I just don't work with her any longer, but a phenomenal human resources professional who just didn't want to get her undergrad. It wasn't, didn't have an interest in that formal kind of education, but she was a lifelong learner in other ways. So it doesn't have to be the same way that I value higher education, but it could be in other ways. But if somebody is not committed to regular learning in some ways, quite frankly, I'm gonna have to get that person off my team because that's just not going to be a good fit because everybody on any team needs to be constantly learning and growing. Again, Wendy, I'm not saying we start here. (laughs) This is kind of what's going on in the background of my mind as I then start to have the tactical conversations that Dave described actually in the last question too. And and in this question too, as far as that goes. So it's tough. (laughs) It's hard because I think there's always something behind that idea of the time. The time excuse is invalid in my opinion. We have to kind of rearrange that. And so one thing we might do from a tactical standpoint is to say, gosh, you really are busy. You do have a lot on your plate. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I try to bite my tongue <laughs> in that, that case. What would it look like if you did have the time for learning? How, how might that look? What, what would need to happen in your role, in your life? What, what would it look like if there was time for you to do ongoing professional development or whatever, whatever the language is that you use in your organization? And that's how we might start to unpack what this really is about. And I mean, maybe there's something as simple. I'm just thinking about my own experience where the person is in a cubicle and they've got all these people always around them and they'd rather go sit somewhere in a conference room and be have some more quiet space to do that kind of thing. Or they would do better if they got to go off site for a little while to to do some kind of learning or that kind of, I'm not sure it just, just find out what it would look like for that person to have that commitment to ongoing learning. And then as a team, the other thing that you can do from a tactical standpoint is have people regularly sharing their own, what I call a personal knowledge management. I shouldn't say I call it that everyone calls it that what is called a personal knowledge management system. And we've talked about that before on the show where we're just regularly sharing And that could be sharing in a meeting context where we just go around and I used to lead a group of 
of educators who would share, here's one tool that's really working for me as far as using technology in the classroom. Or you could say in your context, here's one tool in the organization that's really helped me perform my job better or whatever it is. And then we'd go around the circle and each person would share, here's something that's not working, that, that we're not going to fix necessarily right now. We'll go through everybody, share one thing that's kind of not working that maybe you need to learn more about or is a challenge for you. And then you can start to see patterns as a group where, gosh, everyone's been mentioning or a number of people have been mentioning the real need around this. And then you can bring that into the organization. I, I love the way you've, you've talked about that. And, and it actually got me thinking about the second thing I was going to mention, which is I make a distinction, Wendy, between speed and movement. And you talked about, you know, what speed you're going and are you going too fast or too slow for, or not too slow for people necessarily, but <laughs> I would worry, I would, I wouldn't worry as much about the speed and I'd focus more on the movement. So the, you know, Newton's first law of physics and movement is an object at rest tends to stay at rest an object in motion tends to stay in motion. And oftentimes the real work is to start the motion. And so, okay, there's 10 things that need to be done. And yes, you have someone who's really busy. So, okay, let's step back and let's do one of them. Or let's do two of them this week or this month or whatever the case may be. So um, so going slower is fine if, that, if the situation dictates it, but not moving is not okay. So I think if you can get people into that framework of let's have movement, let's keep going, let's keep... I mean, as long as people are moving in the right direction, that for me is almost always a good thing, even if they're not going there quickly. So I think if you can frame it around that for yourself and for your team, that might be a helpful starting point too. And I think you'll find that it becomes easier as you get people moving then to take step two and step three and to keep going from that standpoint. So I hope that's helpful to you, Wendy, and we've given you a few ideas to consider. Thanks again for the, that really kind note. And our next question here is from Anthony. Anthony wrote in and said, I run a newly established monthly alumni meeting. And Bonnie, for your context and everyone else's, this is a monthly alumni meeting of a of an organization internal for the company where they've had a training course or a, a mentoring group that's been established. And part of my role is securing speakers to discuss topics that business leaders face day to day. Uh, since we don't have a budget to compensate the speaker, what we give them in exchange is access to our cohort members. Unfortunately, I have no experience in such a role. Any guidance or possible suggestions would be greatly appreciated. And I think specifically he's wondering, you know, what can they do to find speakers and experts that when they don't have the budget to, to pay someone. Any thoughts you have on that? One of the things I have found helpful in securing speakers in this kind of arrangement is to recognize that it's helpful to be upfront from the very beginning that this isn't going to be something that is compensated. You're just saving yourself time and saving the other person time that going back and forth. I've had, a, I've regularly over the years been asked to speak. And most of the time, if it's a not non-compensated thing, I need to say no. In fact, Dave, we've said no to even some compensated things where mm -hmm. it's just yeah. not an alignment with our core fundamental things that we focus on in our lives. And we'll pass up sometimes even paid speaking arrangements. So just being very clear upfront. And so it doesn't seem like you're, you're, hiding that fact, even though you might not be intending to hide it. The other thing which you already started to allude to is just the power of networks, though. There are many people, and I would, depending on the topic, accept something for less than my normal compensation rate or perhaps without any compensation, depending, again, 
on how closely it was aligned with my core fundamentals that I'm focused on in life and also the value, as you said, beyond just whatever compensation might be there. And you talk about this network of individuals that would be there. Well, then you're going to be looking for who would find value in being able to speak to that kind of audience and what kind of value might they receive and being able to articulate that. And as I'm sure you've thought of already from a logistical standpoint, you're going to want to have some sort of a template email where you've really thought through and crafted that. Dave and I each have templates like that for our podcast invitations that we've refined over time to really think about our audience. And in this case, our audience of who we're writing to, to invite to be on the show and what would be compelling language for them. But then I don't know about you, Dave, every single one of those then gets customized directly to that person. Yeah. I'm starting with the framework of, I know this language works because I've gotten feedback from people who, I don't say it this explicitly, I'm kind of thinking, so why did you say yes to my invitation early on as I was podcasting to try to get an idea about what's working in terms of my invitations. And then I just kept tailoring and tailoring and tailoring. I've got my template now, but then everyone gets some, some type of a personal customization of that message. Cause it really, when you can tell when somebody's just writing a template to you or when they've actually taken the time to notice in your case, what would be the value that they might bring, but also what that value might this alumni network that they would be speaking at bring. The other thing I would just say is even if you don't have a budget for things, be thinking about what other kinds of ways you might graciously thank these speakers. For me, I know, I mean, this is such a small thing, but but I'm just, I'm giving you this as an example as somebody who does speaking, writing a review for my podcast on iTunes would be like, oh, thanks for doing that. Writing something on LinkedIn, if you're connected with the person on LinkedIn, writing a recommendation for them on LinkedIn that speaks to the quality of their work, giving them some kind of a testimonial from your organization, which is especially sanctioned where you say you could use this, the name of our network on your website if you'd like to include a testimonial because your presentation meant so much to us. So just really being gracious about other kinds of gifts you could give to that speaker that aren't monetary, but that, that would really help them with whatever work that that it is that they do. Hmm. I, you know, this is somewhat unrelated to the question, but something you said reminded me of this. I was involved in a coaching organization years ago that had a monthly program and speakers. And one of the things they would do it was a practice of the group at when the speaker was done with the event, it was a dinner meeting every month. They would have the audience get up and three or four people would say something that they really liked about that speaker or their presentation. And it was just such a gracious thing. I, I just loved that practice. And the speakers who didn't know that, who were outsiders who came in, were always really impressed by that. They're like, wow, you know, someone got up and talked about what, you know, what value I just brought to this room. And, and people were really touched by that. And then some of the other things that I was thinking about here, Anthony, for on your question is... I've been part of a few of these things, and Bonnie, you and I have done even a few of these internally. Um, we did a project years ago with a client that did not have the resources either to bring in outside speakers. And so what we ultimately did is we looked internal to the organization of who could come from an internal resource that would also provide some of the lessons and the context for that organization. And you, um, I took the name out of the, the organization you work for, but it's a fairly large organization. And so there's probably a lot of people inside the organization that would potentially come in as speakers or potentially even be interviewed. Uh, Bonnie and I did this project for a client years ago where we had an ongoing interview series where we interviewed an executive in the company once a month 
and invited a whole bunch of people to sit in as employees on that conversation. And they got to ask questions. And it was a really fun, interactive event each month. And it got videoed. And so they could use it in other places. That's certainly a way to do it. And other places to look to your members. You have a large group of members already. They have and expertise, especially these days where so many of us are doing things, you know, doing lots of different or have our hands in lots of different things or doing things on the internet. You can bring in people within your membership who have particular expertise in areas and, and have that be part of your program too. So you've got internal speakers who come in, you've got people who are members who bring a topic. You could almost even set it up as a member slash mastermind slash class thing where you have you rotate through the membership and you say, okay, this month we're going to have this person who's going to go out and is prepare a presentation on this. And this is maybe something they're interested in. They're going to do research on, or they're going to partner up with someone else in the organization and prepare, you know, find the resources are out there. You could bring in a video, you could bring in a podcast. I mean, there's so many different ways you could approach it. So I would, if you're, if you run into obstacles with bringing in external speakers and the logistics of that aren't going to work, then I would I would turn to your membership and think like what can we do that we get people together that creates value and so if that comes from them if that comes from executives within the organization there's so many different ways you could approach that you could even have a book every month that everyone reads or I mean I I, mean, I, I, I hesitate to say that I mean I don't want it to be like a glorified book club necessarily but maybe that's part of the component of how you do that and how you add value for people. So there's a lot of different ways to approach it. So hopefully hopefully we've said something there that'll give you give you some help in thinking through how you might approach that from a real creative standpoint. This next question is from Saria. I'm exploring the prospect of becoming a leadership coach. Currently I work as the head of a division in a large company. I've always had an interest in teaching and coaching. While I have never taught consistently in a classroom as part of a school or an organization, I have done quite a bit of training at work with my marketing team. Most specifically, I found that as I'm getting older, I pride myself on working with others, in particular the younger people in the office. I've been listening to all the back issues of your podcast and been learning so much. And as a result, I think this area may be for me. I'm not sure where to start. That's the inquiry with you. And actually, Dave, I'm going to pass this over to you to answer because this is in your area of expertise. It is. And I actually talked with her a little bit more over email and sent an audio comment over to her. And the there's a few things that I think of when I think of someone who's in a role like she is, which is in a, in a pretty senior role in an organization. And when I think about people who are wanting to become coaches or develop into having a coaching practice, there are a couple of things I think of. One of them is the actual skill set of coaching and getting better at that and working with people. And many people who go into coaching or have an interest in coaching, this is the motivating factor for them is the real heart and the desire to want to help people and better people's lives and their careers through coaching and through other similarly related skill sets that can help people to do that well. It's one of the reasons that we do the show is we have a real heart for that. And so I think that is just an absolutely wonderful place to come from. And I would encourage you to do things to get better at that. And so two lenses I think of that for you specifically and for others who are in a similar situation is you have this great blessing of having a team of people that already who are reporting to you. And so there's a great opportunity to do coaching and to do a lot of coaching because you can bring those coaching skills into your daily interactions. I suspect you're probably already doing that. But if you're not, certainly begin. And if you are doing that, of how do you even become maybe more intentional about putting a good structure in place 
and bringing in the skill sets that you're learning from from this show and from taking coach training and doing the other things that coaches do and really find out what works, what resonates, where do you run into obstacles and really start doing a lot of that coaching. And that will serve you well either in your current role, however long you do it, or in the future as a coach. The other thing that I think is helpful is for some people, some formal training can be helpful around coaching. I would certainly look at an organization like the International Coach Federation, ICF, and they have an accreditation program of ICF accredited coach training programs, of which there are a gazillion of these days. So that's certainly a good starting point. I went to a program called Coach U years ago, years ago, which is still a very active and successful program and is worth a look. I've heard great things about CTI over the years, and there's there's a whole bunch of different coach programs that are out there. And I think for many people, that's a good framework and a good starting point because I know you're thinking about this from a long-term perspective. That will provide some of the theory and the practice that you can then use and to put into practice with your team currently and also with some clients uh, potentially. And from a standpoint of this show, I would recommend episodes 190 and a very recent one, 237. 190 is an episode with Tom Henschel on, on coaching skills and how to get better as a coach, which I love. And episode 237 was just a couple of weeks ago with Michael Bungay-Stanier on his new book, The Coaching Habit, which has lots of great questions in there as well, too. I think those are great resources for you. And then the other piece I think about this is, which is the piece that is more of a struggle for most people who enter the coach, coaching as a profession, is the business side of coaching which is a very different skill set from my perspective than actual coaching skills of sitting down with a client and is the one that I found over the years of people I know who are in the coaching business or have tried to be in the coaching business is probably more of the struggle point for more, more people. So to that extent, I would go out and to start trying things. So you have a long-term plan. Um, don't wait until five or 10 years, however long you make the transition, to actually go out and start finding clients. I would go out and start doing that soon. Uh, to go back to the last question, as far as movement, you might take a small step, but take a small step. Go find a client or two and Utilize that as an opportunity to learn about marketing and to learn about creating an online presence and creating a brand and the challenges that go along with billing and expectation setting and all of those things that are all really important parts of coaching and the coaching business, but are the things that a lot of coaches don't anticipate or they struggle with and in some cases prevent them from really being able to be successful coaches because they have a difficult time navigating that. So I think from the standpoint of improving your coaching skills, and then also becoming savvy as a business person and how you would run a business. I think those two things are, are critical. And, and keep us in the loop and let us know what you do so we can support you along the way. We're excited that you're using the catalog as, a, as part of your resources around that. It's a great starting point too. And let's see, do we have time for one more? I think we have time for one more. Okay, so Bonnie, this question is from Tom. Tom wrote in and said, I was wondering if you could recommend a source, a book, a website, blog, et cetera, for changing organizational culture. I work for a major university, which is great, but being part of a bureaucracy has its problems. I'd like to find a way to change the culture to a positive one. Thank you in advance for any help you may be able to provide. And this is a good question for you, Bonnie, because you work in the higher education world. So how do you get a university to change their culture? Tom, I have to a confession to make. 
When I read your question right as we were preparing to start the episode, because I just get these questions about three minutes before we hit record, I burst out laughing and couldn't stop for about 90 seconds because, and not, not that I'm laughing at you, it's because I'm laughing with you because I can recall so vividly, I work at an organization now, a university, but it, it's not a large one. But prior to that, I did work at quite a large institution and it's, I mean, it's mind boggling to, to someone who's never worked in an environment like that. It would be very difficult to fully describe exactly some of the idiosyncrasies that exist. And even within the large ones, there are real differences. And in fact, Dave, I was listening to your podcast interview with Adam Grant. He talked about, let me see if I can get it correct, that there are more differences within an organization culturally speaking, than there are between organizations. Mm. So I don't want to just blanket say, oh, yes, all major universities are exactly like this. But if you look at the pockets of culture that were, that are within them, I think there are. And he works he works at a large university, too. So he would he would be speaking from having worked in a context like that, too. So all that to say, you can't change a culture. And there's a great thinker and researcher in the area of culture. Well, well, you can, but you can't do it by yourself at a large university. So You cannot. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one person is not going to go. <laughs> a a team of people over years <laughs> with a really good strategy will start to yes. change the needle. Yes. But. yes. Edgar Schein is the really amazing thinker in this area. And his books are so deep and rich that I, I'll, I'll candidly admit, I don't feel like I'm even smart enough to read. And I, I probably just need to keep going back and keep going back. They really were challenging for me. And I love to read. I say that, by the way, because there's so much there. Every sentence is just oozing with wisdom about it. But, but it's definitely dense reading, in my opinion. One of the things he actually does say, Dave, is that you can't change a culture talks about I mean, that the cultures change, but that, that a person can't. And, and he, he, he writes about that pretty profoundly. And I, I don't feel quite that helpless in the sense of as leaders, that means we just give up or whatever, that, that one of the things I think is helpful is to take advantage of the fact that change is always present. If we look at any, any, so any change that comes into the organization that you are attempting to influence a change in culture take advantage of the fact that that change is going to force change. If that makes sense, I'm thinking about you have some kind of a regulatory change or you have to change a process or now the laws say that we have to treat admissions this way. I mean, whatever it is that is going to happen, whether or not people want to see that change happen or not, take advantage of that to begin to start to mold a new culture that looks more like a one that you and others, as Dave said, it has to be a, a team effort doing this, but would be more effective. And one of the greatest writers I have ever read on the subject of change is William Bridges. And I've talked about him on the show before. Well, yes. His pinnacle work is a book called Transitions. And in Transitions, he introduces his entire model having to do with change. First of all, changes don't start with beginnings. Every change begins with an ending. And so recognizing that as a business leader, that when things are starting, they're also ending. And we have to have opportunities for people to mourn the losses that they have. And he talks about it from every context of, of 
a difficult thing like mourning an actual loss of a coworker or something like that, that, that you're sometimes you're literally mourning losses, but other times you're mourning things like a loss of a sense of identity or a sense of ownership in something. And there's lots of different ways that loss can manifest itself. And then he describes what he calls the neutral zone. And the neutral zone is, yes, we began now, but things aren't done yet. We haven't established all the new processes. The norms aren't in place yet. So we're in this, we're not entirely sure what our roles are going to look like, entirely not sure how the new thing's going to look. So neutral zones can both drive people crazy because it creates ambiguity and it's really uncomfortable. Ambiguity is incredibly uncomfortable for, I think all of us, if we admit to ourselves in varying degrees, of course, but there's also a tremendous opportunity for creativity in the neutral zone that he describes as well. At any, at any rate, that, that first work that he wrote called Transitions, he introduces everything in his whole life's work on change. Then he writes a second book, which is actually the one I would most recommend to you called Leading Transitions. And Leading Transitions is where he goes and says, okay, so you're a leader who's going to be responsible for these three phases. And, the, and a lot of it's written kind of in checklist form. Okay, so we've got the ending, right? Because remember, every change starts with an ending. Here's your checklist for a leader who's going to be leading someone through. And it's kind of a nice thing to go, have I done this? Have I done that? Have I done this? Then leading through a neutral zone and then leading into the new beginning part. And then if you want to just completely go deep on this and also get out your box of tissues, he wrote a book called uh, the way of transition. The way of transition, I where think. he documents his own view of his life's work, looking at change through the lens of his wife dying from cancer. Spoiler alert, by the way. Sorry, I should <laughs> fast forward. It. No, he, you know well, that. The whole yeah, the whole book's kind of built around that. So, yeah. So um, he says this whole lens of every change starts with a ending. He talks about it in the context of his wife passing away and. And it, is he right about what he said about change all those years? It's really powerful. But yeah. the one I would re- most recommend would be that second one because it's more practical. And I don't think I've ever cried so much reading a book than reading that book. Mm-hmm. I remember that was that's an incredibly powerful book. Yeah, I didn't even think about transitions. Such a powerful, such a powerful book and a model. The other book that came to mind too, if you're not already familiar with this, speaking of difficult reads, is The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge. It's a book on how to create a learning organization, but I also think that there's probably some context here for how you handle change. In the category of a little easier read, if you're looking for a a simpler model that's just very accessible, John Cotter's book, Leading Change, is the seminal book on on how to navigate change in an organization. And so I'd certainly recommend that. He's got a companion book called uh, the Our Iceberg is Melting, which is more the fable version of it. Both of those books I've used many, many times over the years and recommended them many times for organizations looking at ways to think about change in a very structured and very practical way. And then the final recommendation I'd have is a book called Reframing Organizations by a couple of authors named Bowman and Deal. I think it's in its fourth or fifth edition. That's also a pretty accessible way just to start thinking about how your organization looks today and what you can do to potentially affect change in a way that's very productive. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you to Bonnie and thank you to all of you for sending in your questions to us. We are running a backlog of questions right now, by the way. So if you've sent a question in the recent past, we've still got it queued up and we'll hope to be able to feature it in an upcoming show. And that said, don't let it stop you from sending your question. We always love getting great questions, especially those that we know will be helpful to others in the Coaching for Leaders community. And the best way to submit your question is to go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And there's a few options there on how to do it. And you can record right at your computer or device and listen to it before you send it over if you want. Or if, of course, you can send over a written question too. That's always a great way to do it. The next Q&A show will be episode 243. So get your question in early if you'd like it to be considered for that show. And uh, we talked about a lot of resources today and another great way to keep up to date on resources and things that will help to inform your perspective around leadership each week is the weekly leadership guide. I publish it every Wednesday. It comes to your inbox and we'll provide you with articles, podcasts, videos, articles from me, things that I think will be helpful to you. It's pretty concise. I list out what's there, and if it's helpful to you, you can click on it and go find that article and read the details, but I try to keep the email itself pretty concise these days. And of course, it always has a link to the show notes. So all of the things that we mentioned in today's episode, as with every episode, will be linked to in that weekly email. So if you'd like to get access to that, go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe, and that will get you onto those leadership guides that come on Wednesdays. It also will give you access to my reader's guide that has a list of the 10 leadership books that will help you to get better results from others. And we actually mentioned two of the books on that list in this episode, Transitions by William Bridges and The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge. There's eight other books on there too that I spent a whole bunch of time putting together that list and thinking through if I was wanting to get a good framework for leadership and if I was just going to read 10 books, here'd be the 10. And I think you'll find that those 10 have not only provided a lot of value to me and a lot of people I know, but they've stood the test of time. In fact, a number of them are 20 or 30 years old. It's a great place to start your leadership journey. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe is how to access that. And thank you so much for listening. And we're looking forward to talking with you again next Monday. Have a great week and a great month. Take care.